What's up, gumbo listeners? Demetrius Malbro here with another data protection gumbo episode. And this one is titled The Missing Component in a Cybersecurity Strategy. And to drop some knowledge for us today, I have Eric Herzog, CMO and VP of Worldwide Storage Channels at IBM's Storage Division on. And he is an industry veteran, and I would like to call him the MVCMO, or the Most Valuable Chief Marketing Officer in Storage. And his career spans many storage hardware and software, cloud computing, and converged infrastructure companies. So Gumbo listeners, Eric will be discussing the role of data protection, some of the challenges associated with cybersecurity, and also the impact of not modernizing your data protection solution in 2021. And so much more when we get back from thanking our sponsors. You'll never be immune to cyber attacks, but you can bring your A-game. With the secret secure backup technology, you become too tough and costly to crack, compelling threat actors to move on to easier prey. Gain the advantage today. Visit asegra.com for your low cost, easy to use, and hard to hack backups. Welcome to the gumbo, Eric. How are you? Great, Demetrius. How are you? I hope everything is going well. Everything is going well. I know that our listeners will definitely walk away with some fantastic insight of what's happening today. Great. Well, thank you. We really appreciate uh, you inviting us to Data Protection Gumbo. All right. Well, let's go ahead and let's let's start off a little slow here. And uh, how about a brief rundown of your career as CMO of several large data storage and data protection enterprise companies? And also, I guess, what's keeping you up at night besides the usual COVID-19 pandemic woes that everyone else is talking about? And how, I guess, how we run our home lives as well as our business ones. So what's keeping you up at night, Eric? Okay. Um, So first of all, I've been doing storage for almost 45 years. In addition to being at IBM, which I've been at twice, IBM bought one of my startups. Uh, I've also been a senior vice president at EMC uh, and the CMO and senior VP at uh, MacStore, the hard drive company that was then acquired by Seagate. But I've also done seven storage startups. Thank God five of them have been acquired. So we've done a pretty good job uh, as a team there. So though, and I have raged and done everything from component level products and storage, such as chips or hard drives, all the way up to storage systems. And almost every one of those startups was a storage software company that only sold software and didn't sell any infrastructure to go with it. To your second question, I think what's keeping me up at night, um, in addition to pandemic, is obviously there has been a lot of economic impact of the pandemic beyond there. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the key things is how are companies dealing with that? Uh, how are they optimizing the infrastructure that they've got? What are they doing to cut costs, but at the same time be secure? And as you've probably seen, it's been all over the um, IT press in particular, is that the amount of attacks on data, and data is a company's most valuable asset after its employees, employees are first, but after your employees, Mm -hmm. the most valuable asset is data. And because of this whole work from home deal and the impacts of what's going on, the cyber attacks and cybersecurity has become an ever more important issue beyond just the more traditional storage questions of how do I back up my data? How do I optimize for applications? So those are the things that have have changed in in, basically the last six to eight months. Okay. Wow. And now let me go back. Did you say you have 45 years of experience in IT? 
Uh, I've been doing nothing but storage for almost 45 years. Wow. And I'm, I'm not going to say my age, so we'll, we'll just keep it at that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let, let's talk a little bit about the, uh, I guess, the item that's considered, and you mentioned this as well, the most valuable asset in today's digital universe, which is obviously data. What's your view on how data is being stored and protected today, whether it's unstructured, structured, or whether it's from a hypervisor or even a container? What's your thoughts there? Well, the first thing is your primary storage, file blocker object. So A, you need to make sure, of course, that their primary storage is always available and reliable. Mm -hmm. Six to seven nines of availability, even if you're Herzog's Barn Grill, the small company is now important. You need to be up and going all the time. Second thing around the primary storage side is how can that be part of your security strategy? So for example, Several companies, where one of them has got data at rest encryption with no performance penalty because of things we do with our flash storage. So, you know, what data needs to be secured and what data should not be secured. So, you need to do an analysis of the data, figure out what you should be encrypting. Uh, there are certain things for compliance. So, write once, read many technology, uh, where it's immutable, uh, particularly for publicly traded companies or companies in heavily regulated industries. So even if you're not publicly traded, if you're in the sec securities industry or the finance sector in insurance, clearly in healthcare, um, obviously drug companies, whether they're public, like someone big, like a Novartis or a Amgen, or whether you'd be some small drug company. So there's a bunch of heavily regulated industries where you need to look at where do you need compliance support from a data storage space. So that's on the primary mm -hmm. side. On the secondary side, then, is how do I keep that data protected? And it's it's very comprehensive. So it's what do I do for modern data protection, also known in the past as backup, so I can easily access data? What do I do from a replication snapshot perspective for business continuity and disaster recovery? We're in the midst of a bunch of firestorms here. I'm at the end of August now going into early September in Northern California. I'm from Silicon Valley. And obviously, even if your data center's got fire protection, if there's a wildfire, hurricane, earthquake, it doesn't matter. And these natural disasters are all over. And by the way, even with fire suppression, the number one cause of data loss, other than humans, so accidentally deleting that PowerPoint, but other than humans, it's still fire. So you've got to make sure that data is not only replicated for a disaster recovery and business continuity perspective, but you also want regular backup, right? So if I'm going to replicate from Silicon Valley to Colorado, let's say to avoid an earthquake, and then I do delete that PowerPoint file, then do I really want to go recover from a replica? No, I want a local backup, right? So you want to do both. You need to have both backup technology, right? And you've got to have, of course, the replication technology. For some companies, uh, archival is a big issue. So healthcare, obviously, finance, and certainly anybody who is publicly traded, right? Regardless of whether you're um, in a services sector or finance sector, or you're a manufacturer, right? Any publicly traded. So you've got to deal with archive as sort of a second element of secondary storage. And then the last thing for both primary and secondary is cybersecurity and cyber resiliency. Um, I would argue when you talk to the CIO or talk to the CFO, it's, if it's a smaller company, the CFO is running you know, the IT in a small company often, they don't realize that a cybersecurity strategy includes storage. So for example, whether it be here at my other companies, I've often talked to CIOs. First of all, I would point out, I've never met a CIO in my almost 45 years doing storage who was a storage person ever. 
A, you've got to talk the language of that CIO, which normally is a software person. Second thing is when they think security, they usually think the wall to keep the bad guys out and then tracking the bad guys down when they breach the wall. And the question in storage um, security is not going to be if, it's going to be when. And obviously in the mid to big companies, it's not just a when, it's like, how often of a when are you being broken, you know, attempts every week or whatever. So, you know, when you've got that, and many of those CIOs have told me point blank that sometimes they don't know for several days or even several weeks that the bad guys have breached their, breached their moat and bre- breached the wall of the castle. So if they don't know that, they could be stealing you blind. They could be altering data. They could be doing altcoins. They could be doing industrial espionage. So that's why you need to think of your storage as part of your holistic security strategy. And I've met almost nobody who thinks that way. So it's mm-hmm. changing a paradigm from a security perspective. Wow, that was a lot. I really love that that advice that you, you've provided. You also mentioned a little bit about, you know, the conversations with CIOs. And, and I guess that's due to your, you know, very lengthy experience and some of the tables that you sit at. So um, I, I really appreciate that advice. And I, I know the Gumbo listeners will really appreciate that. So one of the things that the, the pandemic has done is further exacerbate the problem of cyber threats and also ransomware attempts as you you sort of alluded to. What are some of the challenges associated with cybersecurity beyond the ones that, that you just mentioned a little bit ago? Right. So obviously, keep the bad guy out and track the bad guy down, which is not done by any storage vendor, mm-hmm. right? That's the security companies, right? IBM Security, okay. RSA, which is now independent of EMC, Intel, you know, McAfee. There's all kinds of companies that do cybersecurity and cyber resiliency from the big companies down to the startups. Yeah. Okay. So that's keeping the bad guys out. Okay. Now the problem has gotten worse. A, there's a lot more cyber criminals even before the pandemic mm-hmm. and the associated recession. But now what they can do is one of the ways you can attack is you can attack through the home. And the reason is so many people are working from home, including the IT team, the backup team, the storage guys, you go in through your VPN. If you can sneak in from the guy's home through the VPN, as well as a frontal attack, which is being more and more common anyway, uh, because they think people aren't there watching, which is not true. You can you know, monitor your complete data center and cloud remotely, but that doesn't mean they're not going to try because you're not sitting in the knock right at a bigger company or in the data center, right? Monitoring stuff. So they think that doing it from home is harder for the companies to do, which I would argue probably isn't true, but that's what they think. Then, of course, uh, the costs are huge. So, for example, University of California, San Francisco, this was reported at the very end of June, um, there was a, a ransomware attack and they paid uh, just under $1.5 million to get it unransomed. Okay, the WannaCry attack, right, which was a couple of years ago, cost the world $8 billion. And the NotPetya attack one company alone was impacted by that it was over $300 million. So the bottom line is the cost of cybersecurity to you is huge. Cost obviously is the value of the data, the reliability of the data, particularly, you know, and, and industrial estimate. I mean, there's a million things that can happen from stealing the data, destroying the data, malware, holding it for ransom, ransomware, um, and just all kinds of things that have to happen. And again, the big here is not the if, it's the 
And, and obviously for your, the mid-sized listener up, I know you've got some global Fortune 500s that are part of Data Protection Gumbo. They're probably being attemptedly breached like all the time. And if you're a global Fortune 500 with multiple data centers slash clouds, they're attacking from multiple venues. So that's very, 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 very risky for you. And in fact, the World Economic Forum put together in 2019 a set of global risks, like, like what are the risks and that companies face? And one of the risks that they talked about was cybersecurity, and they had the likelihood of that as five. It was number five on the list of all the things of, of lists, which included things like a recession and obviously things like global warming. So, A, the likelihood was number five, and then the impact was number seven. So, you know, short of an earthquake hitting the entire world, like in a science fiction movie or something you see in a sci-fi movie, the aliens attacking, like I saw last night, I saw Independence Day. Short of that, this is a real huge risk. The likelihood is high. And actually, it's gone up because when the World Economic Forum did those global risks, it was pre-recession and pre-pandemic. So I would argue had gone up. But even last year in an ideal world with a robust economy, everyone thinking, hey, we're all healthy. Um, even then it was the fifth most likely impact for any company. And, you know, the World Economic Forum is not an IT publication, I think is one of the key things to point out. It is basically a generic economic. So the fact that an economic pub like the World Economic Forum would think of cybersecurity as a big issue really means it's a big issue. Whereas I'm sure many of the people who were listening to the podcast or people in IT or people who read the various IT publications, whether it be storage or generic IT, probably see it way more than the World Economic Forum does because it's it's reported nonstop in the, in the IT press and the storage press uh, all over the world. Okay, yeah, th- those are definitely uh, astronomical numbers, you know, in the millions and billions of dollars. And one thing that I like to say as well is that being a hacker and, you know, launching ransomware attacks, it's a full-time job for some people. So they actually, uh, I remember uh, I was doing a presentation a while ago and I did some research on ransomware and I found out that they actually made do-it-yourself kits to make it very easy for the hackers to actually go out and get started. So it's it's just as big as you and I logging into our computer and actually, you know, going to IBM or, or going to Puppet where I am. It's a full time job for them as well. So it's something that we're definitely battling. And just as you said, right, it's not a matter of if it's going to happen. It's definitely when. Right. So one other thing that I, I do want to ask you, and we've talked about CIOs a little bit, but let's let's go a little deeper into the personas of, of uh, storage and backup and recovery, right? So what, what should some of the modern data protection stakeholders, such as business leaders and maybe, let's say, IT infrastructure teams and line of business owners, what should they be concerned about other than the obvious? Uh, so I think the first thing is um, integrating modern data protection into the normal cycle of business. Okay. Second thing is gauging that data protection. What should be protected and how? Data is your most valuable asset, but is your most valuable asset, if you're a IT company, for example, is your most valuable asset your asset database? As you know, the asset database would be the chairs, the whiteboards, the computers, mm-hmm. uh, is that your most valuable data? Should that be encrypted? Should that be backed up every week? You know, should be backed up every day? So you should do really a 
data protection assessment of all your data sources on your primary storage, what's the most important. And by the way, that also extends to disaster recovery and business continuity. You might need to do disaster recovery of your entire data center once a day, Mm -hmm. and that may be good enough. But on highly transactional databases and workloads, if you happen to be in the banking area or some other areas, that's not good enough because losing a day in banking or in in many of the financial sector could be losing millions. So you need to profile all your data, figure out how do I where do how do I do my modern data protection item one, how do I handle my business continuity and disaster recovery two, how do I handle my compliance and regulatory often associated with archive. So you make sure that you're always compliant. You've got the data. If you're audited, if the if you're in healthcare and the health authorities want to see something, um, God forbid you get sued. I mean, there's a reason why you retain healthcare records because you could have a frivolous lawsuit. The surgeon did everything possible and someone still died. Okay. Well, you the, and the now. By the way, if the surgeon did the wrong thing, guess what? That's going to come out in the data, so you lose the case. But the point is, data is not you know. You don't want it to be manipulable and you want it to be compliant and regulatory. So you want to make sure you take care of that. The other trend is for secondary data sets, snaps, replicas, backups, and archives. How can I use that for DevOps, for test, for the software developers? How can I use that and still keep control? As you know, when you do development with a faux data set, you often have more problems than when you use a real data set. So if you've got a database and you've got in-house developers and developing a new analytics package internally being developed for sake of argument, or even buying one that they're customizing to do the actual testing and development on a real database, a duplicate copy without impacting the production copy is a good thing. And modern data protection technology allows you to do that, which makes your DevOps process better, makes your software development process better, makes your test process better. So all of those things of secondary data usage of a backup data set or archive data set is something you want to think about. And then lastly, related to that is how do you keep control? So if you're IT, do you have a process for checking out that secondary? So for example, at IBM, we have a product called Copy Data Management. And actually, the DevOps team or test team can actually set up their own environment very quickly through APIs and access the backup that was done last night for sake of argument. Great. But guess what it also does? It tells you who accessed the backup from last night and who set up an environment. So if some data set as part of that backup is very important. Somehow that financial data leaks out or whatever doesn't mean anyone stole it, but at least from an internal perspective, you know who was, if you will, checking out the secondary data set to use for DevOps or to use for test. And then you got a trackability thing, which of course IT is responsible for that data. So you want to make sure that happens as well. So that's that's a, a big trend is qualifying the data for all the various uh, secondary workloads, backup, archive, uh, business continuity and disaster recovery, but also take all data and have secondary data use. Of course, we've already talked a lot about cyber resiliency and cybersecurity. So that in today's world is a given on what you need to do with these secondary data sets. Okay. Yeah, great. And also something else that you mentioned, you mentioned DevOps and and being able to tap into your APIs. You know, that's that's something that's really huge right now with the, you know, CICD pipeline and, and you know, everything like infrastructure is code. I've even heard backup is code, right? So it's definitely a thing and it's a trend that's, uh, that's moving in the direction of automation. Automating all of your application protection, pretty much really making sure that you have that simplicity 
see involved in, in what you're setting up. I agreed. And I would argue if the modern data protection you're using doesn't have automation, then it isn't modern. It's old world. Right. Right. And it should be all modernized and automatic. You know, you set it once and you forget it. So if you're mm-hmm. got a heavily transactional database and you're going to back that thing up every single half hour, then once you set it up, it should just be doing that. You should never have to mess with it again. By the way, if you need to change it to every 15 minutes, you'd be able to go in, change it to 15 minutes. And then again, it's now every 15 minutes. So, you know, all part of modern data protection, the word modern assumes, and I would say automation is part automation and use of AI technology inside of your storage products, whether it be primary storage or secondary storage slash data protection is kind of a given. For example, our Spectrum Protect uses AI technology to look for um, anomalous activities in backups, snaps, and replicas. That anomalous activity, which is AI-driven, could indicate a malware or ransomware attack. And by using AI, it will bring up to Demetrius, the backup admin, or the CIO, or whoever you designate, or in a big company, multiple people, that there's anomalous activity in the following backup data sets. You need to check that out. We don't so, you know, it helps do malware, but it's all AI-based. We have AI-based technology in our primary storage as well, such as tiering data, you know, from different um, performance tiers. And basically, when the data is hot, it automatically puts it in the hot tier. When it's cold, it automatically puts it in a lower cost tier. But that's done with AI. That's not the old way. The old automation way in primary storage would have been move the data after 30 days, 60 days, or 90 days. And by the way, that was a big change. Okay, but now it's AI based. So instead of setting policies, which I would argue is old world, modern storage is AI based where possible. And I gave you an example in both the data protection side and in the primary storage side, and then automation of everything. For example, in primary storage, we support Ansible, which, as you know, is from Red has an IT automation technology um, for data centers or clouds. So, you know, those are the kinds of things that you want to make sure that you're supported. Um, as part of what modern data protection means. Yeah, that's that's all great advice, and that's definitely the the hot trend right now. And as you mentioned, it's it's definitely things that if if you're not taking APIs and automation, and and your solution doesn't have any type of heuristics and artificial intelligence built into it to detect anomalies, then you you may want to you know change your change your solution because that's that's definitely something that's going to help save you time and money and headaches. You know, at in the of the night. Also, so we've, we've already talked quite a bit about cybersecurity, but I, I really want to kind of pinpoint in on maybe your philosophy on on how customers should, let's say, respond to just like a cyber incident. Can, can you walk us through your philosophy on just a cybersecurity incident? Sure. So from a cybersecurity incident, you need to take a holistic strategy. Okay, so first of all, you've got that incident. You need to clean off your primary storage, your primary servers, your primary applications, and make sure they're whistle clean. Mm -hmm. The next thing you need to do is when you look up whether you're coming from a snap, from a backup data set, are you doing application aware um, or, let's say, environmentally aware, meaning a container backup or snap restore or a, a virtualization snap or backup restore? Okay, you need to look at a holistic fashion. Then on the in- cyber incident response side, so now I've had the incident, I've cleaned up the primary, you're going to want to try to pinpoint a known good copy of the data. And that's easier said than done. As I mentioned earlier in the podcast, I've had CIOs tell me they didn't know someone had breached for a couple days 
or even a couple weeks, which means you're backing up the malware or you're replicating the malware or you're snapping the malware. So what you've got to do is set up a fenced network um, and then you want to do recovery into that fence network. Then you want the application side of the house to go in and make sure that that data is clean. There is no malware. There is no ransomware. There is no problem on that response. Because the last thing you want to do is recover from a snap or recover from tape, which gives you physical air gapping. Or if you've got the data replicated out to the cloud, what's known as a logical air gap. So two ways to create a physical gap, right? One is one is with tape. The other is at a cloud, although cloud, there is a tether there, right? A chronic tether, if you will. But if you bring the data back and you just brought back the malware or ransomware, you just reinfected your primary storage and primary service. So you've got to look at it holistically as not just clean off the primary, but how do I get a known good copy? And when you, you know, and, and that may take some time, okay, and bring it back into this fence network and make sure it's good. And then you continue the process after. So if you don't do this fence network idea and don't look at it from that perspective, the, unless you absolutely know, absolutely, which by the way is very hard to do, but if you absolutely know when the malware ransomware hit, and you can go to a backup data set that was, you know, right before that, let's say 20 minutes before, that's great. But if you don't, and you really have more trial and error, and many times you don't know, then you really do need to go into this fence network. Otherwise, you'll just recover data that's already, in, if you will, already infected, right? And that's not going to help you fix anything. Yeah, I, I really love that advice as well. You you have uh, set up a, a pretty stellar podcast episode. I'm sure this one is gonna gonna really uh, hit high on on the trending chart there. So let's let's roll into the closing gumbo question, Eric, if you don't mind. Okay. Um, and and this is one that it may throw you for a loop. So it's not a techie question. It's it's more a little thought provoking, and you know, kind of get you to think outside of the box a little bit. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. So what would you tell your 16 year old self? If you had an opportunity to travel back in time to secretly change your destiny. So I think the thing I would tell my 16-year-old self is always be a learner. Mm. Always be a learner. Okay. Okay. Some people think that when they're 35 or 40 or whatever, they know it all. And I'm sure we've all met people like that. By the way, sometimes people have a know-it-all attitude, but they're actually still learning. So sometimes that know-it-all attitude goes, they're constantly learning. And they might actually know something better than other people. But, you know, that attitude is a bad attitude to have the know-it-all attitude. But the thing is, you you never stop learning. And, you know, from my perspective, obviously, I've sort of lived that because I've been in seven startups. So though, in the startups, you're up against IBM, you're up against EMC, you're up against Microsoft or Dell or HP or whoever the big guy is in your industry. And you have to be very adapted and you have to be constantly learning because people always learn. The world is different, right? I mean, I'm old enough that there used to be bomb shelters in the backyards of many of my neighbors. Mm. And there was a reason for that in the early 60s. But, you know, if you were born in, 20, in 2000 or even 1990, you would say, are you crazy? No one does that. <laughs> you always yeah. want to learn from the past, right? And someone who was your friend from, a, let's say, a, a international political perspective may not be your friend 20 years later, and then 40 years later, maybe your friend again. So, you know, the world is constantly changing and adapting, and the smart person is constantly changing and adapting, and learning is a huge part of that process, and learning, um, you know, and l- looking at a lot of different data sources, right? Because you don't want to have 
fake learning or fake news, whatever you want to call it, whatever political spectrum you're on, you want to learn stuff and you want to make sure that that it's credible. And I think that that's a big issue. And from a, you know, for a job perspective, for all the people on, on the data protection gumbo brought a podcast for all those people who are working, you know, it helps you get ahead in life, the more you learn. And I don't mean not just in the business sense, clearly in the business sense, if you want to get promoted, by the way, some people don't want to get promoted, they just want to do their job better and want to coach their kids baseball team, there's nothing wrong with that. But the more they learn, the faster they can do their job and do it well, get a raise and still coach their kids baseball team and others who want to, you know, move up the chain. Part of the way you move up the chain is understanding and learning and adapting to new ways. Let's take today, one of the big trends today is all about containers, right? If you go back 15, 20 years ago, the big trend was server virtualization. So now server virtualization is still here and it's not going to go away very quickly because it's the predominant way of data storage, both for primary data and for secondary data. But at the same time, there's advantages to going container. And in 10 years from now, if you haven't learned about what containers do and why you want to do containers, then it'll be hard for you to get a job or, you know, so that's why constant learning is what I tell myself at 16. Never stop learning. It's always important. I love it. I love it. And that's that's some some sage advice there. And it, it sounds simple. But nowadays you have all, all of this technology. There was an issue here at the house. The kid down the street, he broke a window out of my daughter's car. And uh, I, I couldn't prove it, but but I just really knew it was him um, because I found some some pellets inside of the car with the broken glass and also all around the car. And then I found some stuff out a little bit later. But the reason that I'm bringing that up is the car is so old. It's a 2000. 2002 and I called around no one had the windshield so it was discontinued so I, I was forced to go to a junkyard a pull apart place and I was kind of forced to do it myself so I found it I watched a couple of YouTube videos it took me four hours on a Saturday but I never knew I could replace a windshield so that's the power of learning, the power of technology. And uh, Eric, I, I truly appreciate you coming on the show. Is there any way that you would like anyone, any other listeners to reach out to you on social media like LinkedIn or, or maybe Twitter? Sure, sure. Uh, my Twitter handle is Zoggin Store. Um, I have my complete LinkedIn is totally public and open. So anyone can uh, you know, send me a LinkedIn message because um, I'm open. I don't I have everything open and public. Um, and then obviously on the Twitter side, it's uh, Zoggin Store. I'm, I'm very active on social media. In fact, um, I've won several awards for social media back in 2017. One of the top 10 CMOs in the world to follow on social media. And just in January of this year, one of the top 100, actually I was number 11, one of the top 100 people to follow for AI, big data and analytics. So, you know, please uh, reach out, see what you do. I, I don't, post any personal things. I post things that hopefully will benefit um, customers and users and people in the IT space very heavily. By the way, one thing I would point out is very heavily, you know, it's really success stories. It's not just saying my product is great, but you know, if you've got an end user or you've got a story um, about how you fix something or solve the problem, like you just gave about the windshield, you know, if you've got a problem in storage or modern data protection, putting that stuff out on social media on how you fix something, or avoided a cyber threat, or recovered from a cyber incidence, or how you deployed a new all flash array and optimized the database workloads and things like that. Those are kind of things, you know, if it's not proprietary, if the CIO doesn't think it's proprietary, putting that stuff out uh, helps everyone in the industry. So everyone in the industry can learn 
And I think that that's an important thing. And that's what I do. So anyway, Zoggin store on Twitter, or again, anyone can reach me over uh, the message facility built into LinkedIn. Well, all right. It's definitely been a pleasure having you on the gumbo, Eric. So until next time, you have a fantastic week. Great. And thank you for inviting uh, me and IBM Storage to participate. It's been a great, great set of questions. And it's very apropos, uh, given where data protection in particular has gone and how most people just think data protection is backup. And that's the old way. It's not backup anymore. It's way more than that, whether it be helping with cybersecurity and cyber resiliency, whether that being able to use secondary data, right, to help save money and to improve the quality of in-house software development and tests, or whether it be just the capability of automating all this stuff so that you, your own job is easier, right? These are the things that have come out in this podcast. I really want to thank you uh, for reaching out to uh, IBM Storage and myself. Absolutely. Until next time, Data Protection Gumbo. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Data Protection Gumbo. Please follow us on Twitter at DPG Podcast and join our Backup and Recovery Professionals LinkedIn group. Just search Backup and Recovery Professionals on LinkedIn and you will find the group. And until next time, Gumbo listeners, have a fantastic week.